You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Good morning, church. We are going to hit pause in our series through the book of Romans, just for a little while, just for four weeks, so that we can go through a series in the book of Jude. So if you have your Bible, and if you would like to read along with me, I'm going to read the entire book this morning, which is only one page, and I want to encourage you to head there. It's right before the book of Revelation, if you're, if you're hunting for it. And uh, while you're headed there, I want to answer the most pressing question you have right now. The answer is no. Pastor Josiah and I do not coordinate our clothing or shop. Well, we do shop at the same place, the secondhand stores, but um, we, we do not coordinate. And now that we've gotten that out of the way, I want to encourage that we give our attention to the book of Jude. Have you found it? It's a very small book. You end up going back and forth, back and forth. Um, my iPad is slowly opening my notes. Somebody who's found it in the Pew Bible, if you're looking for it, it's on page 1088. Now, what I'd like to do is read the entire book because this is how the series is going to go. Rather than me dealing with the first part of the letter, and then me dealing with the second part the next week, and then me dealing with the next part. We're not going to do this in a linear fashion from the beginning to the end. We're actually going to take the whole book of Jude, excuse me, and we're going to go through it from four different perspectives that he provides for us, four different focuses uh, that are very helpful from this letter. So let's go ahead, just this week, I don't think I'm going to read the whole book every week, but this week I'm going to read the whole thing. And I know you might go, oh, that's going to take two minutes, but it's only going to take two minutes, right? So I think we can do it. All right, if you'd like to follow along, the letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were destined for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you came to know these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who kept not their own position about, uh, but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on that great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah, And the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare to under a slanderous condemnation against him, but said... The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do not understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them. For they have gone the way of Cain, 
have plunged into Balaam's error for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion. Verse 12. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild... Excuse me, verse 13. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning the ungodly acts they have done in an ungodly way concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against them. These people are are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you, in the end time, there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people created divisions and are worldly and uh, not having the Spirit. Verse 20. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others but with fear hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can devote this much time to reading your word and be attentive to it. God, as I open my mouth to proclaim what you have here, may it be clear and precise. May we have ears to hear. Help me, Lord, to to preach this correctly and what you would have for us this morning. And Lord, may we hear it and heed these warnings and follow your instruction and find ourselves in your love and grace. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking the time with me to read through the whole book. You can now say, hey, I read a book in the Bible. You only have 65 more to go. So, <laughs> Here's what we see. We see as we're reading through the New Testament that Jesus warned us in Matthew 7, 15 to be on guard against false prophets who come to us in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And the most logical question should be, how in the world do we recognize them? How are we going to to see them? That even came up in the Bible study we had this morning in my class. How do we recognize them? And twice in that same paragraph in Matthew 7, Jesus said, you'll recognize them by their fruit. Two times. You'll know them by their fruit, verses 16 and 20. Okay, this is just not some off-chance warning beyond guard against those who come. It's not just one of those warnings like, don't play golf when there might be a lightning storm. You know, that's kind of maybe, I mean, that's, that's a wise warning, but the likelihood of getting struck by lightning is very slim. This is not that kind of warning. 
This is a very serious warning. Be on guard against false prophets who come to us in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Because later, he said, Jesus, he said, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. That's Matthew 24, 11. Many false prophets, many will be deceived. This is a serious warning that he gave to the church. And then Paul gave a similar warning. He wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he, to them, he said, men will rise up even from your own number, and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. That's Acts 20, verse 30. Likewise, Paul warned the church in Rome to watch out for attacks from within. He said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them, because such people do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. That's found in Romans 16. Paul wasn't the only one to be warning the churches. The apostle Peter did the same thing. He wrote in 2 Peter 2, 1-2, There will be false teachers among you. They will bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. Jesus, Paul, Peter, all of them were warning of a coming day when the church would be assaulted from within. That the people of God would be battered by lies and false gospels. It's coming, they said. It's coming. Pay attention. It's coming. These things will come. And by the time Jude wrote his letter, they're here. They've come. And Jude was very concerned. He wanted to talk about the gospel, but no. He has a grave warning for us. Jude, verses 3 and 4. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered once to the saints for all. For some people who were destined for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. Have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. There was a warning they'd come. Judas said they've come. And they're still here. And they're not going anywhere. It's the truth of the Bible. We see it play out in our own time, just as Jude and the people who read his letter saw it play out in their time. He wanted to write about the gospel. He wanted to write about salvation, of course, because that's like a happy letter. It's wonderful and great, right? But the situation was so grave, brought on by these false teachers and these, apostle, these apostates, that he, uh, he had to give his entire attention, the whole thrust of this letter had to be given as a warning. Because verses 5 through 19, the majority of this thing, describe these apostates, these false teachers, and talk about their fate and what is going to happen. That's what he had to do in this short letter. And so now you can read this letter in just a couple minutes, as we just did. And so you read it, and you read about the warnings, and you read about the, the, the things that you're going to see, and what these individuals look like, and then you get to the the encouragement, the safety when you get to verses 20 through the end, right? And so you go, whoa, this is scary. Oh, good, here is 
Here is the good news. In the short letter, you get there quickly. I am going to give us four Sundays to this letter. So we're going to take a pretty serious look at false teachers and the apostates here. We're going to venture into these dangerous waters where there are dangerous reefs just under the surface, where there is destruction and problems. And so I thought it best that rather than just going there first, that I maybe provide you with the life preserver before we go out into those treacherous waters, that maybe we do a little safety briefing before we take a close look at some of this danger, right? So we're going to start really in the remedy, in the safety first, before we dabble in the rest of it. So for the rest of my time today, we're going to look at verses 20 and 21 so we can see what it is to build ourselves up, to, to have that life preserver, that safety net. And the next week, I'm going to look at how we help our brothers and sisters. And that's going to come from the following two verses. Uh, that will be 22, and, excuse me, yeah, 22, 23. And uh, we'll take a look at how we help one another and do this in team, because church is a team sport. And then in the third week of our series, we're going to look at verses 5 through 19 and take a hard look at wolves in sheep's clothing, apostates, and the danger. Hopefully we'll be well equipped to venture into that. And then finally, I want to show you that while Jude was so wanting to talk about the salvation that we share and wanting to talk about the gospel and felt like, felt like he couldn't, he actually does. And so in the last week, we're going to see how he actually shows us the beauty and the wonder and the amazement of the gospel through his letter, which that one's going to look through uh, his letter in a little bit different vantage point. So today, verses 20 and 21, I realize we're deep into the letter. I've provided introductory material on Realm and on the website if you want to find out who Jude is and what the deal is about him being a servant of Christ when he's probably actually the half-brother of Christ and when and how. You can go find all that stuff. Let's take a look at verses 20 and 21 again. It says, But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Build yourself up. Notice that it starts right at the beginning of the verse with dear friends. Dear friends. We've heard that before. We heard it in verse 17. Dear friends. And then we heard it in verse 3. Dear friends. It's his way of saying, I'm coming back to the same point I've been making the entire time. Verse 3. Dear friends, contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. That's his point. So now at verse 20, he said, I'm coming back to my point. Just kind of pay attention to this. And so what is this? What is it to, to contend? We don't use that word a lot, do we? It's contend, fight for it, exert intense effort for the prize, right? We use the word contender, leave it all on the field, put in the work, go the distance, contend. If you've ever spoken with somebody, maybe a couple, they're ready to get divorced, you're speaking with the husband or the wife, there's no major sin for the most part. There's no major obvious problem. They just fell out of love. You know, just, I don't know, we just grew apart. Maybe you've spoken to somebody who's there. And you just want to say, wait a minute, it takes, it takes effort. A happy and good marriage, a healthy marriage, it, it does take work. Sometimes you've got to fight for it or, or fight through it. But it's so worth it. You just got to put a little into it. 
It's not just going to land in your lap so easily. And you want to say, don't give up. Contend for your marriage. Jude here is saying, contend for your faith. It takes a little work. It doesn't just land in your lap like you think. Contend for it. But it's not just contending without direction. It's not just running on the treadmill or the hamster wheel. You're, you're contending for something specific. You're contending for the faith. And it's not just any faith. It's not just some faith you pick. It's the faith that was delivered from the saints once and for all. It's precise. It's a specific faith. We don't just go along with it, make it up. No, it's, it's a specific body of truth from God delivered to his people through these apostles for the good of the church. It's that faith. In Acts 2, 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which for us has become the apostles' writing. They were devoted to this specific thing. In Romans six seventeen, it specifically mentions that they were handed a, a specific pattern of teaching that they should hold to, that they should examine, that they should measure against other things. The faith mentioned here that we're talking about, the faith mentioned throughout all of this New Testament is the same tangible, specific pattern of teaching that Paul, who was Saul, was hell-bent on destroying. That faith, the people that held to that belief. And amazingly, after he was converted, it's the same faith that he gave his life to preach that it would be known throughout the world. That's Galatians 1.23. It's that faith. And the charge here is to contend for that faith, this faith, not one that's different or, or just slightly off. Just getting slightly off can be hugely problematic. One time when I was in the army, my unit went to an amazing rifle range that had pop-ups. It was kind of a combat range with all these little people that would pop up in different places. It had all these rolling hills, it had obstacles, and you, and you had to sort of put yourself in the position to, to work the range out. And the guy next to me was way, way serious about it. We were really competitive in the military. This guy was going to have the best score, the fastest score. Um, lots of pop-ups, lots of, you've got to reload through the process. It was a pretty hefty ordeal. He was serious. He was making sure his shooting position was perfect. He was looking at all the terrain, and he was looking at all the terrain features and all the rolling hills, and he was trying to figure out where all the people could be popping up and what was going to happen because he was going to get on this. He was checking every round. He was looking at all, making sure everything was seated to the back, making sure it was all just like he wanted it. He was setting everything out. He was going to absolutely nail this thing. He was all into it. Now, I was into it too. Not like he was. He was seriously contending for the top prize. So the exercise starts. This guy is hitting his targets like that. They barely are coming up. They're not even all the way up. He's taking them out. Pow, pow, pow. Every one of them. Bang, 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 bang. Laying them down. They pop up. He puts them right back down. And he's hitting like a beast. He is on it. The only problem is when he put himself down in his shooter's position, because this is a natural terrain without clear markers, he shifted just slightly. And he was shooting all my targets. So my score was amazing, right? Like, I nailed it. In fact, I was the top shooter on that one, except I wasn't. I had help. The problem is, he missed his targets. He failed because he had just slightly shifted towards me instead of towards his targets. We've got to contend for the right faith. 
the one delivered from the saints once for all, contend in the right direction for the right target. So then Jude, after dealing with the apostates that had snuck in the false teachers, he comes back to this charge here in verse 20 to say we contend for that faith. This is what we do. Dear friends, contend for the faith. Okay, so what instruction do you think he would give us? Some false people have snuck into the church and they're, they're causing great problems. If it were me, I'd be like, you need to find them. You need to get them out of there. You need to root them out and kick them out. Get after it. But that's not what he does, is it? His instruction, verse 20, is build yourselves up in your most holy faith. He says, no, 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 don't worry about them. Forget about them. Pay attention to yourself. Build yourself up in your most holy faith. For starters, this faith should have been their faith. And by extension, this faith should be our faith. Is it your faith? Do you, do you hold to this holy faith that we're to be building up upon? Next, we see that we're to build ourselves up. And if you have a good word-for-word word or a, a good formal equivalent translation, you kind of it's hard to see this. But the idea here is you're building on a foundation. And with one word, you can't capture it. Here's where a paraphrase wins the day because it says build on a foundation. And the foundation is... The faith. You're building on a foundation. It's the difference between our salvation and our sanctification. It's the difference between evangelism and and edification. Okay, the foundation is our saving faith. It's Jesus Christ, it's the rock. And we build on that. So we shouldn't be people that just have the foundation and nothing built on it. Right? That's not what there's supposed to be this building project happening. It's not going to glorify God if we're not building that up. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that we are God's workmanship and he has good works for us to do and there's, there's something where we're growing and learning on the foundation of our salvation. But neither should we ever attempt to build without a foundation, which is so prevalent in our day to day. Let's build up and let's not build it on the foundation of the Christ. Let's just go for it. Right? That's when we end up with things like works-based salvation or prosperity gospels. Well, I'm going to get this. There's no foundation under it. Or the therapeutic you know, self-help gospels. Or the I can do whatever I want in my freedom in Christ gospels. Those are built on no foundation. They're built on sand. And then when struggles come and storms come and challenges come, the whole thing just crumbles and falls apart because it's built on nothing. No, we build on the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. We find that Jude gives us three operations or three practices that would help us to build rightly on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And it's really Trinitarian. I don't know if you caught that. It's very, uh, it's very Trinitarian as we, we look at these. He says first, he says, we, we pray in the Holy Spirit. And we keep ourselves in the love of God and we wait expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. We're building on this faith in God, salvation that he's brought for us. And what do we actually do? How are we building? Here are the three things. The first is this. We pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, we hear that and we make it kind of weird and we run to all these weird thoughts and ideas. It's not complicated. It's not difficult. Don't overthink it. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. I didn't mark my Bible ahead of time because we had class and I was using my Bible for other stuff, so now we get to have a race and see so you can get there first. 
There, I got it. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. It's on page 1002 if you're using one of those church Bibles. I just want to read Romans 8 through 11 in, in the context of thinking, what is it that we're praying in the Holy Spirit? We're in the Holy Spirit, we're praying, there's some action going on. It says this, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That was verse 8. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. See the unity there? If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, he's shifted now from the Spirit to Christ, but it's kind of a, an interesting dynamic of how the Trinity works. Verse 10, now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And that's Christ's righteousness, by the way. Verse 11, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. Jump over to verse 26 of the same chapter. Mine's just right across the column. Romans eight twenty-six. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Because we do not know what to pray as we should. Hear that? That's the prayer for the help in our weakness. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. Don't read into this too much. Every word you pray to God, He first gave to you to pray to Him. It's not anything magic or crazy. It's every single word you pray because the Spirit dwells in you, conforms you in your mind, your thinking, to pray back to God for everything you need and everything you have. When you have that unity in relationship, your prayers are literally prayed in the mind and the will and the power of God. All right, um, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that nobody can say Jesus is Lord except for by the Holy Spirit. Now that does not mean that a person who does not profess faith in Christ cannot physically say those words. They can. But they can't truly in the heavenly realms, mean it, that they are submitted to Jesus Christ unless the power of God is in them. They're not surrendering themselves to the lordship of Jesus without the power of God because we're so sinful, we won't submit to God without the power of God overcoming that in our lives. So praise the Lord for that. If you can say Jesus is Lord and mean it, he dwells in you and he empowers you and he equips you. You are his. Praise the Lord. We need this power of God in the Spirit to contend for the faith that comes from God. This is how he's equipped us. This is how we deal with warfare and challenge. Ephesians 6.18 says, Pray at all times in the Spirit, with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Praying in the Spirit is praying as one who is submitted to the will of God, you're praying for the things of the mind of God, and you're praying for it all by the power of God. That's what it means to be praying in the Spirit. And this helps us fight the creep of lies and false gospels that comes into the church. So we pray in the Spirit. Next he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Here, it's interesting, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. That's the instruction. In verse 24, the prayer is, especially if you see it really clearly, depending on which translation, not the CSB, but verse 24, the prayer is to, we ask God to keep us from stumbling, to keep us in the presence of God's glory, that we would, we would stay there. So we're told to 
keep ourselves in the love of God. And we pray that God would keep us there because it is only by the power of God that we're able to stay in the love of God. We're not going to lose his love, but we can enjoy it more if we draw near to him and he draws near to us. If we abide in him. Now Jesus explains this far better than I can, obviously. So if you would turn to John 15. Here we go. Ready, set, go. Oh, I went to Luke. John 15, verses 9 and 10. Somebody's there. Somebody got me. I heard it. All right. John 15. I'm still going because I jumped too far. See, I should mark my Bible in the future. Oh, I made it. John 15, verses 9 and 10. Jesus shows us what it means to stay in the love of God, to abide. This is what Jesus tells us. As the Father has loved me, I also love you. He's talking to his apostles at the supper there. He says, remain in my love. Well, that's what we're talking about. Well, that's helpful. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remained in his love. We sure don't like to hear that in our individualistic society, do we? But if you would obey... You will stay abided with Christ. Jesus obeyed his Father. He and the Father were together. We can obey by doing that. We're trusting in his will. We're following him. That's how we keep ourselves in the love of God and and stay there. To abide requires that you obey the Lord. But to obey the Lord requires that you know the Lord. You can't obey him if you don't even know what he's saying. You can't obey him if you don't know him. And actually, when you know him, the obedience becomes joy. When you know him, the obedience becomes a guidance that you trust more than feeling like he's domineering in some way. You actually find wonder and joy in your life by following what he suggested your life was designed for. But you got to know him to do that. you got to know him. It requires that you, you dig in and you look. We were, my wife and I were having um, dinner with some friends a couple days ago, and one of the ladies there, we were talking about this. She was asking, hey, what's the Bible study you're going to do? I'm doing a Bible study tools class. And she's like, what do you mean? What are these tools for? And if you want to join me, we're meeting at 930 right there, uh, Sunday mornings. There's other classes you can find too. But I was telling her about my class, kind of, and I showed her a couple of examples. Here's one, here's one, here's one. She's like, Whoa, wow, this is really awesome. This is really great. And she's flipping through, we're looking through the Bible, we're talking about it. And then she says something that I found so helpful. She said, once you see this, you can't unsee it. She says, the truth is just there. You can't get around it. You can't get away from it. And that is why this is such a helpful defense against false teachers and against lies that bombard us all the time. When you know the word of God well, they can't lie to you because you've got information from the source. Keep in the love of God. Abide Obey, know him, follow him. And then lastly, he says, here's the third thing. Expectantly wait for Jesus' mercy for eternal life. Now, some of you might be tempted, and you know who you are, to think this says, wait expectantly for Christ's second coming. But it doesn't say that. You should do that. You should do that. That's a good thing. Be ready at any moment for Jesus to come back. However, this is saying something a little different. This is saying, wait for the mercy of Jesus Christ 
for eternal life. And you say, well, hold on a second. I thought I already had eternal life. Why do I have to wait for it? If I'm in Christ Jesus, shouldn't I already have this eternal life? Well, yes, you do. But there's a, there's a nuance here, and it's an important one, and we often overlook it. And he's kind of encouraging us to remember it. Technically speaking, you have the hope of eternal life. For example, 1 Peter 1.3 says, Because of his great mercy, he has given you a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Christ died on the cross in your place to secure your salvation, and all that is true, and it is secure indeed. And because of that, he will extend mercy to those who believe that he rose on, from the grave on the third day, that you profess that Jesus is Lord and submit to him. He's going to extend to you this mercy of salvation. And the Holy Spirit, by the way, is the down payment of the inheritance that is to come. Right? It's, it's the down payment that shows. And he's walking with us and he's showing us. But when we stand before God and we receive this salvation by mercy, our hope will be realized. And it won't be hope anymore, it'll be reality. Right now we're in the hope, longing for the reality, and that happens at the final judgment at the end of the age. Well, does this mean we should be worried? No, you shouldn't be worried. Not at all. You can take God's promises to the bank. He says if you believe in him, he says if you trust him, you will not get pulled out of his hand. You are safe, you are good. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who is promised is faithful. Okay, then why would it be this? Why wouldn't you just say, you're saved, it's good? Why, why, why is this nuance important? Why does, why does Jude want us to see this as he, as he showing us that we need to wait with this anticipation, expectantly long for it? It's because we need to understand that, that holding on to Christ Holding on to this faith, building on it, is teaching us and guiding us and showing us this is the means by which Jesus is protecting us. Not only from the, the wolves on the inside, but from the wolves on the outside. This is the means by which he's growing us and conforming our mind into his likeness as we're building on him. This isn't how we get saved, but it is how we grow, and it is how we know him well. It is how he's keeping his promises and indeed saving you if you are saved this is the mechanism that he's bringing you from hope to reality in your salvation. And Jude here is telling us, longingly expect and wait to hear my mercies on you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. Long for that. Think about it. We should have an expectant longing for that day. Are you anticipating it? Are you waiting for it? Not in a, hey, get me out of here, Jesus, in the crazy world. I'm talking about the day you're face-to-face with Christ, and you say, it's because of you I'm here. And he says, that's right. Well done, good and faithful servant. It should shape our minds, and it should conform the way we think. It should be consuming our thoughts, right? It's like a person, not everybody does this. I don't. I should. It's like a person who buys a swimsuit in the dead of winter. Maybe it's a little smaller than... um, person currently is in size. Uh, They buy a swimsuit in the dead of winter with the longing to enjoy said swimsuit at the beach in the summer. Okay, the beach is going to be there. You're going to the beach either way. 
But you just think you'll enjoy it a little more if you have a little bit of discipline thinking about and looking forward to and anticipating the beach and this swimsuit. The anticipation becomes motivation. The anticipation becomes joy. Um, I didn't ask for permission to share this, so I guess I owe my wife a dollar. But my wife loves having a trip planned really far out into the future. She likes to have this vacation situated so that when you know, the days are gloomy or when there's difficulty, she can go, oh, but it's coming when we're going to go to the coast. Oh, it's coming when we're going to do this. Oh, we have that getaway. Oh, I'm tired of vacuuming and cleaning and doing the laundry, but we have that weekend camping trip and I'm looking forward to it. She likes to have something to look forward to. Why? Because that anticipation and that longing helps her to navigate the dreary day-to-day. Anticipate, long for, expect the mercy of Jesus Christ in your salvation for eternal life. It will shape you. It says, false teachers are destined for destruction, but the faithful are destined to receive mercy and eternal life. It's this idea of one way or the other, and what are you thinking about, and which way are you longing for? Are you among the faithful? Is this your faith? Listen, if it, it can be. It should be. What kind of pastor would I be if I didn't tell you, you need to believe this? Your salvation depends on it. Is this your faith? Are you submitted to Jesus Christ? Are you living for him? Are you conforming your mind to his will? And, and are you trusting him? And are you following him for your joy, for, for navigating this crazy, difficult life into the next as you're headed to the eternal city and glory? Really, are you thinking about that on a regular basis or are you just taking it for granted? Think about it. Expect it. Long for it. And if you're not thinking about it at all, we'd love to chat with you about it. I would love to talk with you about it. We'd love to get you plugged in so you can learn more about Jesus. I'd love to open the Bible and show you what his word says about becoming an adopted child, a saved one. Come talk to us afterwards. We'd love to talk with you. The point, the point of all of this we're talking about is that we are called to contend for our faith. And to do that, we have to build ourselves up on the foundation of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that will keep us safe from false prophets and lies. It'll bring us closer to God, and the closer you are to God, the further you're away from the lies. The closer you are to God, the more you know Him, the more you study, the more you pray, the more you anticipate, the more you think about it, the more you make your life about this, far more difficult it'll be for those who want to lie to you, to pull you away, to destroy you. The far more difficult it will be in your life for Satan to wreak havoc on your life if you're closer to God. We should be challenged by this text. Contend for your faith. Make it important. Take it seriously. So the only question I have for us is what needs to happen in your life in your rhythms, in your day-to-day, everyday comings and goings, what needs to happen, what do you need to do today to contend for your faith? Let's pray. God, as we look at your word, as you're encouraging us and it protects us, Lord, most of us could find a few more minutes to pray, to read your word, to talk with other believers, to just think and hope and dream on that day when we see you face to face in glory, to thank you for what you've done. Even, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we, as we mentally anticipate 
salvation, as we rest in your promises and as we trust you, as we're intentional, God, fill our minds with Jesus Christ. Move us and call us. Help us find a few minutes here and a few minutes there. Help us to put away the distractions. I'm sure all of us spend at least a few extra minutes on our phone that could be pushed aside. A few extra minutes looking for another movie to watch that could be pushed aside. A few extra minutes here and there. Lord, just help us to draw closer to you. Keep us, Lord. Preserve us. Keep us in your, in your ways, in your love, that we would trust you and that we would follow you. And Lord, I'm asking that you would protect us from the lies. And I know there's plenty of lies in the world, God, but I'm asking that you'd protect us from the lies from within. Those who profess to be Christians, who aren't standing on your foundation, who are, who are maligning your word, who are making it about the wrong things. God, protect us. Protect us, Lord, by drawing us closer to you and protect our church. Help us to protect one another. God, as we work through this letter, as we see that the warnings you made so prevalent are here, Lord, let us be mindful, but above all, Lord, let us be mindful on you, because that was your instruction. Build ourselves up. So, Lord, I'm asking, please, this morning, build us up. Build us up individually. Build us up as a church. Lord, that all of it would be to glorify you and to one day see you in glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.